Um, it's very hard. I'm away from my family during the weekend. It's very hard. It's the hardest part of the job is uh, is the fact that I'm away from my family. Uh, and even when I'm home on weekends, uh, you know, I'm spending one whole day working. So I don't think I'm balancing it very well. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb appearing on this podcast just four months ago. At the time, the commissioner said that missing his family was the hardest part of his job. And this week, that's the reason he gave for leaving FDA. It's one of the most notable departures for the Trump administration. And given Gottlieb's influence and high profile, all the policies he pushed, the people he hired, we wanted to spend some time looking into all the new questions it raises for the Trump administration. First, you'll hear from my colleagues, Sarah Carlin Smith, a farmer reporter, and Adam Kankren, who kind of covers it all, as we talk about the politics around Commissioner Gottlieb's departure. Then after the break, I sat down with Sarah Overmall, also a farmer reporter, and Helena Bademiller-Evich, our senior food and agriculture reporter, to discuss the policy implications and Gottlieb's legacy at FDA. And a reminder that Commissioner Gottlieb appeared on this podcast twice. I'll include links to those episodes for you to listen at your convenience. And now, let's get to it with Sarah Carlin Smith and Adam Kankren. Sarah Carlin Smith, welcome to Politico Pulse Check. Thanks, Dan. Adam Kankren, welcome back to Politico Pulse Check, too. Hey, Dan. It's good to be here. By my count, there have been three agency-altering departures at HHS during the Trump administration. HHS Secretary Tom Price left in September 2017 because of the charter plane scandal. CDC Director Brenda Fitzgerald left in January 2018 after her stock portfolio scandal, where it turned out she owned tobacco stocks and other things and kept having to recuse as a result. And now Scott Gottlieb is leaving, just two months after he memorably posted a meme of Mark Twain and the quote, the reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated. Sarah, you cover FDA so closely. Why is the FDA commissioner leaving, really? So FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb says he only planned on ever being in this job about two years. We're just about at this mark. His family lives in Connecticut, which is close to D.C., but, you know, it's not a daily commutable distance. And he it's just taken too much like of a toll on his personal life and his family. And it's time for him to move on. That being said, this is D.C. We've heard a lot of people um Used that line before, and it's been a cover up for something else. So far, the, the line being, I'm spending time with my family, and it's <laughs> right. usually code um, for doing anything but spending time with the family. Right. But so far, I think there's nobody has any credible um, explanation to counter what Scott Gottlieb is saying. Nobody can say anything that com- confirms he's not telling the truth. But people are still wondering, you know, did he have some kind of dispute with HHS or the Trump administration? Was there some tension going on with Congress? Um, Is there another reason that maybe sent him running now besides just wanting to spend more time with his family? I, I think what's especially striking is that in Washington, when someone is leaving, there is always going to be scrutiny. There will be rumors flying. And in a normal administration, the explanation that I'm leaving because I'm, I'm burned out or spending time with family, even that might be more accepted than in the Trump administration, where we've seen departures usually out of chaos or scandal. Is there any whiff of scandal that any of us have heard about 
with Gottlieb. I don't know that there's been any whiff of, of scandal in the in the you know Trump era way of it. So um, you know things that are potentially illegal or or that have been unethical. Um, he hasn't asked for a mattress from the Trump Hotel. No, and I, and as far I think as we what's, know. what's interesting, and I think what's really baffling in particular about this uh, resignation is that you know Scott Gottlieb is one of the uh, most respected. I guess, Trump uh, officials from, you know, if you talk to either Republicans or Democrats, they'll say about the same thing. And he's largely been, you know, among the least controversial. Um, So the idea that, you know, you have Gottlieb leaving now seemingly abruptly with very little notice uh, raises a lot of questions. Um, And, you know, everybody wants to spend more time with their family. Uh, I'm sure that's a contributing factor, but it's it's very hard to buy that that is the sole factor. Here's a headline from Bloomberg, quote, Donald Trump just lost his most popular bureaucrat. So Gottlieb's popularity and success was was seen across the administration. Let's go back to what some of those contributing factors might be, or at least some of the fights that Commissioner Gottlieb got into. Sarah, you alluded to perhaps tension with the Hill or the broader administration. What What are some of those flashpoints? What have they been? So Gali's been aggressive on probably almost every area that FDA can get its hands on. So he's been really proactive in tobacco, um, e-cigarettes, and that's probably one of the most controversial areas an FDA commissioner can strongly regulate in, particularly among Republicans. He's also been really big on nutrition policy, contributing or continuing a lot of Obama-era policies that weren't always popular with Republicans. Um, At the same time, I think he's done things to balance you know, both sides, to appease both sides, Republicans and Democrats. So maybe on the side of appeasing the right a bit more, he's done things to try and speed up drug approvals, created new fast pathways for gene therapy, really made some big changes to the medical device approval process. So that's where a lot of his popularity comes in. Um, It's just a question of whether some of those issues like tobacco have sort of bubbled up enough that they created some kind of tension for him. And I should say the three of us have spent so much time since his announcement that he was leaving trying to figure out exactly what those tensions were. Two of us have talked to Gottlieb directly. We've talked to people close to him as well. When you say that tobacco has been a flashpoint for him, what specifically has happened with tobacco recently? So Gottlieb's been trying to do a few things. One is um, lower the amount of nicotine in cigarettes. The other big thing is kind of to ban flavors in a lot of tobacco products, particularly menthol. That's been a big key area of controversy. Senator Burr is um, the Hill Republican is not a big fan of that. And then the third thing is e-cigarettes to more tightly regulate that and kind of keep it out of the hands of kids. Of those policies, I think the e-cigarette thing gets the most bipartisan buy-in and public support, particularly if it's targeted just at kids. But um, he's starting to push it a little bit (laughs) with um, some of his allies as you get further into other policies. And that tobacco issue has been seen by some as a third rail. Gottlieb had a meeting at the White House just last week talking about tobacco and other uh, other other issues in the smoking area. I, I know I have heard folks who may not have any evidence suggest that those pressures, either from vaping, from tobacco, caused some of the tension for Gottlieb's departure. Is there any truth to that as far as we've been able to report? I mean, I, I would think that if, if there is truth to it, and, and it's certainly possible, it's not in the traditional uh, Trump administration way where 
uh, the president gets fed up with somebody or somebody in his inner circle, uh, or you know that person loses the confidence of, of the employees under him. That's generally kind of what we've seen in the past, kind of creating the momentum for somebody to go. Here, if there's an issue, it's in that middle area. You know, it's with um, OMB officials, with people in HHS. It's that kind of mid-level area that doesn't touch Trump, that doesn't touch the you know uh, employees, where there there would be a problem. Gottlieb is very um, vehemently on the record denying that there's any tension in the administration, White House, over the tobacco products. He's saying that meeting his meetings went fine um, at a very public event. Um, Though the, Senator Richard Burr from North Carolina very recently called Gottlieb out on the floor of, of Congress criticizing him for his tobacco policies. Right. And I mean, he's one senator, perhaps one senator more powerful than others in tobacco. But like, um, what I was going to say is Gottlieb Bray publicly said today that before he leaves, he was going to finish a lot of his tobacco agenda. So that will be probably an interesting and key moment to watch, right? If he can finish it, if the White House and HHS gave him approval to check that box, that probably does send a strong message that um, there wasn't a huge disagreement there. And just to jump off on that real real quick, you know, everybody looks at, at, at Richard Burr from North Carolina as, you know, mainly because he's been the most vocal about this. Uh, but I think one thing that I can say with confidence is that Richard Burr is not the Republican senator that has the ear of the president. You know, there are several senators who talk regularly with Trump, who talk regularly with his inner circle. Richard Burr is not the guy who's going to go up to the West Wing and get somebody fired. Um, now, Richard Burr has been part of the senator cadre that has pushed intelligence investigations with uh, Virginia Senator uh, Warner. Yes. And as much as a, of a conservative as he is, he has not been among the president's def- you know, staunchest defenders, I guess I should say. Um, and so he may be a cri- contributing factor, but I, I think you know, Gottlieb is most likely to be believed when he says, look, this was not you know, uh, the factor. This was not the single factor. That said... Yeah, I think that there is a case for, uh, you know, it being contributing, being part of maybe a broader, um, you know, a broader decision where, look, he's he's eyeing the exits. It's coming up on two years. Uh, Everybody that I've talked to, and and let me know if you've heard differently, but everybody I've talked to said they only assumed he had four to six months left in the administration anyway. Uh, The question is, what, for me, what happened over the last 72 hours that made him decide, this is the day that I'm going to resign. And that's the thing that I don't think that we were clear on yet. And I think what's tough is none of the three of us were in the room. Again, we have talked to people who have been in the room. We've talked to Gottlieb directly. And this is the challenge of being a Washington reporter sometimes. The folks that you talk to will have incentive to tell you the story that you that, that they want you to hear. I, I want to go back to Gottlieb's track record. And again, thought of very highly by the president publicly embraced by the healthcare industry. And yet there were a few flashpoints recently. The shutdown, the federal shutdown, really weighed on FDA, which had to make constant moves to figure out how it was going to be continuing with operations. There were staff, some senior staff that Gottlieb wanted to install that he couldn't. Interestingly, the deputy, Amy Abernathy, who just joined the administration, could have been on board even sooner and had more of an overlap if there had not been a shutdown. So I know that that was was a tension point. And when you think about the negative stories for the Trump administration during the shutdown, that the story about FDA not doing food inspections and how massively viral that went, 
the, the story, not not the impact from the lack of inspections, as far as we can tell. But but that became a, a flashpoint for people opposed to the administration and Trump for shutting down the government. Yeah, one interesting thing about Gottlieb. Um, all along, well before the shutdown, is he's always been fairly independent. He, I don't think he's ever felt like he's had to pander to the White House line. So there have definitely been key instances where he's taken a viewpoint that probably isn't 100% where the White House would want to go. And in the shutdown, the language he was using on social media very publicly was sending a message that the shutdown was creating problems for the FDA. This was not ideal. And politically for the White House, it's a little bit complicated, right, to have your FDA commissioner saying uh, this whole government shutdown thing is a terrible idea. And the White House is kind of directing it and saying this needs to happen so we can get our other priorities accomplished. And that's another area I think people are wondering about, like, are some of those building tensions something that kind of eventually just lead someone to split. And I, I want to take that forward. So Commissioner Gottlieb had the power, the authority, the skill set where he could go out and set a message around FDA. He could push his priorities. Adam, as he departs HHS in, in a month, what does this mean for HHS strategy, for the political power structure there, and for FDA moving forward, at least from political yeah, it, it leaves a lot up in the air. If you think about you know some of the priorities that we've we've talked about already, especially on on tobacco, vaping, menthol, you know these are things that only Gottlieb was going to push, right? These are his his major priorities. And and the main question I think in in talking with people around the agency and on the Hill is there's a major question of uh, first whether those priorities will continue to go forward, uh, and then secondly, you know who's shepherding those? There's still no news on who's going to be acting, whether uh, the administration wants to nominate somebody to be, you know, FDA commissioner permanently. Uh, there's questions around, you know, who even, you know, could qualify for that job or be up for that job relatively quickly. Um, and, and on the other hand, you're looking at, uh, again, a shift where you have one of the three major agency heads leaving. So Gottlieb's leaving. That leaves Seema Verma, the head of CMS, and then Alex Azar, obviously, the, the HHS secretary, who are now kind of the two senior people there. Um, and I, I think it's interesting, it's something we've discussed here, is that uh, there have always been these rumors around, you know, will Seema Verma leave at some point? When will she leave? It's, it's, it's ironic, number one, that, that she's still here and according to the people that I've talked to, has no plans to leave anytime soon whatsoever, which I find pretty credible. Um, and secondly, she in particular... Uh, seems to be gaining uh, a lot more influence and a lot more power over the last few months. And the reason for that is, is a, a fewfold. Um, anything that the Trump administration wants to accomplish in these next couple years, most likely going to have to be regulation. Uh, they're not going to get much buy-in for top Trump priorities from House Democrats. Uh, and then secondly, if you look at the people who have come in and who have left, Mark Short is now in the White House, a key Seema Verma ally. Andrew Bremberg, who often clashed with Seema Verma, is now gone, replaced by Joe Grogan at DPC. The Domestic Policy Council. At the Domestic Policy Council. Which is this key policy uh, center in the White House. Exactly. And, and these are the people who are, are essentially setting the, the agenda, health policy-wise, in addition to Azar. And that's not to say that Azar has lost any influence. But those two have worked well together. And if you're looking for, you know, 
any kind of focus shifting, I, I would I would say look at what Firma has wanted to do, look at what Azar has wanted to do. That's where the focus is now. I, I too thought it was really interesting that Seema Verma, who has been at war with advocates in, in her field who have said that the policies Administrator Verma has advanced are harming Medicaid, could harm Medicare. The the head of MACPAC, uh, the advisory council, <laughs> warned Seema Verma recently. Uh, there was an exchange of, of some unusual letters between her and that panel. Um, so I, too, pointed out, Adam, the, the interesting parallel that Administrator Verma, who has been rumored to leave, what, four serious times in the past two years, we've heard rumors of, of her departure. Um, she is going to outlast Scott Gottlieb. Uh, and I pointed that out on Twitter, and Administrator Verma tweeted, or whoever mans her account, uh, that, that 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 was not notable. She said, "What's actually notable is the work uh, Commissioner Gottlieb and I have done to lower drug prices and drive innovation in our healthcare system." Yeah, and uh, it, and to, so it noted, is to be noted, noted that, that Gottlieb and Verma got along very well, and um, we're working on things, you know, in the in the drug pricing realm. One thing I think is worth pointing out is, to my understanding, Scott Gottlieb's tenure at the FDA is actually pretty typical in terms of the amount of time an FDA commissioner usually spends in the job. There have been a few exceptions where we've had people overstay two, two and a half years. But that's another thing to think about, just that these are hard jobs, whether your family lives locally or not. Um, Oftentimes, people take big pay cuts to come into these jobs. So... There's also just reason to think this is sort of typical of big jobs in D.C. that people often don't spend a whole presidency in them. And maybe that's part of it. You could argue that Gottlieb has been the most typical appointee in some ways. He didn't attract negative headlines. He was closely working with his industry. And now perhaps his departure will follow somewhat of a typical path. I I have one last question here, which is about what this means for Congress and its relationship with HHS. Adam, you're up on the Hill a lot. Does Gottlieb's departure change that dynamic? Yeah, this is is a question that I was posing to a few people today. Uh, If anything, it it seems to hurt any kind of relationship between uh, the health agency and the administration and House Democrats. So you have to remember, first of all, House Democrats have the power to investigate, you know, the various parts of the Trump administration, and they've they've vowed to do so aggressively. Uh, but in talking with, you know, people who work on the healthcare side, they've said, look, we know we can talk. We've always known we can work with and talk with Scott Gottlieb. Can do the same with Azar, but to a lesser extent. Losing Gottlieb means there is a major loss of a go-between between Democrats and the administration. Um, and the first thing that does is it, it kind of leaves a vacuum there, right? So if you're a House Democrat and say, I want to talk about drug pricing, I want to talk about FDA stuff, now who do you go to to try and figure out a bipartisan way forward? And then secondly, on the investigation side, uh, this kind of re- removes you know, a potential person that, that – you know, Democrats could say, well, maybe we'll, we'll back off a little bit on the investigation because we want to make sure that we can preserve our relationship with Gottlieb. Um, to this point, I, I asked a, uh, a, a Democrat today, uh, you know, who is a natural point person? What does this mean for the investigations? Who do you, you know, work with? And, and they wouldn't say much, but they did, they did joke, you know, well, what, you don't think we can, we can work with Seema Verma? <laughs> and, and, it's, and, and the context being, look, if there's anybody that they have not felt like they've been able to get along with, it is Seema Verma and then to a lesser extent Azar. And uh, losing Gottlieb means there's, there's no kind of buffer there anymore. Scott Gottlieb is personable. 
He has a personality that's attracted people to him on all sides of the aisle and all parts of industry. And he's a really, really skilled communicator. Most FDA commissioners have not been so public and so great at that. And that's going to be a huge loss for FDA as it wants to move its mission forward. And clearly, as Adam is saying, it could have broader ramifications for all of HHS because he filled such an important role where he could get buy-in from two competing political parties. Yeah, and, and I would also argue that if you look at the areas of compromise that are available in the health sphere, it is almost always, almost completely in the, in the FDA realm. Uh, you know, on things around Obamacare, you're not going to get much compromise. You know, on things around Medicaid and Medicaid work requirements, no compromise there. But when you're talking about, you know, drugs, getting generics to market faster, those are areas that, that we've seen some kind of bipartisan progress. So that's, uh, and, you know, another main question that we'll have to kind of see how it's answered going forward is, you know, who picks up that mantle and, and how does that relationship develop? And we will see how your stories evolve going forward, how Congress is working with FDA and how FDA evolves. Adam, Sarah, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thanks, Dan. It's been fun. Hey, it's Dan Diamond. And if you like learning about the politics and policies around HHS, you don't have to wait for Pulse Check. Just sign up for a free subscription of our newsletter, Politico Pulse. Go to politico.com slash politicopulse. You'll get the newsletter at 10 a.m. Our pro subscribers get it at 6 a.m. If you're interested in either, go to politico.com slash politicopulse for more information and to sign up. And now back to our conversation about Scott Gottlieb with my colleagues Sarah Overmall and Alina Bademiller-Evich. Now I'm joined by two other colleagues. First, Helena Bademiller-Evich, our senior food and agriculture reporter. Hello, Helena. Hi. And Sarah Overmall, our farmer reporter, back yet again. Hello. Your, your names, it's like the pronunciation Olympics. So we just talked about the politics of Scott Gottlieb's departure. I, I wanted to spend the next 15 or 20 minutes talking about the policies that he put into place at FDA. When you were thinking about all the different initiatives that he pushed, what is the signature one that stands out? Sarah, you cover pharma. Helena, you're here because it's the Food and Drug Administration. You cover food and nutrition. Why don't we start, though, with the drug issues? And and what, what grabs you, Sarah, about his legacy and, and the signature initiative? There were so many different things, both for drugs and devices, but I think if you had to sum them all up, it would be about modernizing the space, whether it was Uh, issuing guidance that would acknowledge the way that technology and cybersecurity threats played a role or issuing guidance that made the drug trial process more efficient and easy to incorporate real-world data into it. Um, And that wasn't happening under the Obama administration? I think one of the things that was significant about what Gottlieb was doing uh, under the Trump administration was was really the way that he incorporated or was trying to incorporate real-world data because that has really just in the past few years become a more significant player in the drug space. Uh, as far as medical devices, he really was adapting to the time and the scrutiny that has been placed on devices and some of the safety concerns that have come out lately. Is there a device, a drug that, that Gottlieb shepherded through that historically was not able to make it through FDA? I don't know about not able to make it, but he led the agency when some drugs came to market that are f- really first of their kind, regenerative medicine, uh, so CAR-T therapies, cell therapies, um, and the first gene therapy was approved uh, under his leadership. And he 
published framework for how more of those therapies can be developed and come to market. So he definitely was leading FDA during a very, very exciting time for science and drugs. Helena, what was the signature initiative on the food and nutrition side? So I think the two things looking back will uh, will mark Gottlieb's legacy is uh, implementing two major Obama nutrition policies. The first would be keeping uh, the update to nutrition facts labels, which was something very important to former First Lady Michelle Obama. And there was a bit of controversy during the Obama administration when they mandated that those updated labels would have to include added sugars disclosure. So actually, a lot of consumers now are seeing those labels. They've been slowly rolled out. Uh, And certainly when uh, this administration came to power, there was an opportunity to delay that further, to scrap it, to redo it. There could have been all manner of disruptions to that policy, but he decided to keep it on track. And, And my understanding as someone who only dabbles in the food and nutrition news is that industry was very opposed to There were elements, labels. yeah, that really felt that the added sugars label in particular wasn't backed by science, was, you know, a, a bridge too far. Uh, so there was that. And then also menu labeling. So when you see calories being posted on those menus of chain restaurants, and this has been implemented nationwide, it's, it was actually something buried in Obamacare that or the Affordable Care Act that everyone uh, kind of forgot about, it took years to implement. And that finally took effect last spring. And the commissioner took a lot of heat uh, for pushing that policy to the finish line, even though there were parts of particularly retail and pizza chains that were very opposed to that. And those are two, I think, very visible markers of, of legacy that, that we're going to see for a long time. So I, I cheated a little on this question because I asked Commissioner Gottlieb directly today, what, what do you think is your legacy at FDF, you had to pick one thing, and, and that was hard because he can one go on thing. about yes. Yeah. <laughs> but he, he said he was proud of changing the culture on opioids. Uh, certainly Gottlieb has been out um, stressing things that in the past FDA might have done to contribute to the opioid epidemic and, and walking back from that. He said there's a different way of thinking around opioids. But if I had my druthers, I actually think um, that I should probably not have used the word druthers, but if I had my, my pick of a legacy that that he is memorable and that he is so different. It's how he shaped media strategy for FDA. I can't remember a time that any health agency got this much positive press. A lot of that goes back to him. He could teach a, a master class. And there, there are two tactics that I thought he was particularly good at. One was knowing how to spread nuggets between all the different publications. So there would be a New York Times story on, say, opioids or modern healthcare on some story that would be relevant to that readership. And that not only ensures positive coverage, but it really forces us like kids chasing a soccer ball to do those follow stories, those match stories, even his resignation news. Um, All three of us know when, when that news dropped, we spent the next number of hours trying to both confirm it and then have to follow that story. And then I think the second thing that he was really good at was understanding that the more accessible a government official is, usually the the better the coverage is. Both the stories will be smarter. If I can call Commissioner Gottlieb directly and get his comment, that's usually better than having something work through telephone. Uh, and, and secondly, the more they're talking and responding and appearing at speeches and, and making their calendars public, the less time all of us have to snoop around and try and figure out what's going on behind the scenes. And I, I speak from experience here. When officials wall themselves off, 
that sometimes can lead to the most investigative stories because there's nothing else to write about. In terms of his opioid legacy, how do you think, Sarah, the Gottlieb era will be remembered? Well, first of all, completely agree on his accessibility. I think um, it was most noted even during the shutdown when he was talking almost daily about how they were working and providing, you know, morale to furloughed employees. But yes, on opioids, that's really interesting because Helena and I were actually just speaking with him earlier. Um, And and I just want to underline actually how rare that is. super rare. All three of us have talked to the FDA commissioner in the past 24 hours, right after he said he was resigning. (laughs) Did that ever happen in your old days covering FDA? Absolutely not. It used to be really hard to get even statements, basic questions answered on certain topics, and that has completely changed. Completely changed, 180 degrees. Right, absolutely. And I think one of the reasons, I mean, he always has been accessible, but one of the reasons he really wanted to talk today was to stress the things that are still going according to plan. And he did specifically bring up his opioid plan um, and assure us that all of this, um, this really sweeping proposal that they have to reform opioid reviews and oversight and safety issues is still going to be on track for 2019 goals, including requiring blister packs for, opi- for opioids and post-marketing studies to see um, addiction risks. He will really did want to stress that that is absolutely still in implementation, even when he's not there. And I want to add one thing to the to the media strategy because I think the other noticeable thing that maybe the members of the public aren't as uh, aware of is just how many statements Commissioner Gottlieb put out. And, you know, just on on everything, I mean, every day, multiple statements every week, just, you know, you could go back and look, your inbox flooded. Very unusual. And some of these statements, I think you mentioned the opioid statement was 4,500 words long. (laughs) Yes, it was. (laughs) So you had to read the whole thing. You know, sometimes there were little nuggets buried in there. And just that level of communication, totally different than any other FDA I've covered. What's an initiative, maybe an overlooked one, that Gottlieb oversaw? He was remarkably busy. I mean, the reason they were sending all those statements to our inboxes was it felt like FDA was announcing something new all the time. Helena, was was there one that, thinking back, was particularly interesting or different that he pursued? One of the things early that I found really interesting is the commissioner said that FDA had found money to do a consumer education campaign around nutrition. It wasn't a ton of money. I think it was going to be a few million dollars. Uh, but this was kind of unique. I mean, even when they rolled out the first nutrition facts label um, in the mid-90s, uh, There wasn't a budget to market that. It was really reliant on free media. That's not traditionally been something FDA does. Uh, So it was a kind of novel approach, the fact that that was a priority and that it was a nugget that he would share with the media. That was something he was looking at. That was part of a broader nutrition strategy that he laid out last year that didn't get a ton of attention because nutrition policy tends to not be this like major mainstream issue, but was really novel and I think surprised a lot of people. His, his almond milk and nut milk strategy did, did win FDA a lot of attention, at least on late and night And almond shows. doesn't lactate. That is the, the – the, you can buy T-shirts now with that. Um, that certainly was one of his most – probably his most viral moment. It got an Onion article. Yeah, it was on The Late Show. That's, Someone used it in their wedding vows. That's when you know you've made it, uh, <laughs> when, when the onion is parodying you yeah. and people aren't sure whether it's true or false. But on that note, we don't know what's going to happen on that issue because that got a lot of attention you know, in popular culture. But dairy producers really want FDA to crack down on use of the term almond milk and soy milk and you know, cashew cheese. So that's a big question. That is an unfinished 
an unfinished item. Utah Republican Mike Lee recently made the statement that that a lot of this is unnecessary. Someone like me who goes and buys almond milk or coconut milk, we we don't need the, the, the milk part is irrelevant. The reason we're buying these things is because it's not dairy milk, and that is widely known, so that this is a controversy that didn't need to exist. Well, the dairy industry would argue that you're not getting as much calcium and vitamin D from your cashew milk or whatever, so uh, maybe consumers are confused. This is something that's going to be hotly debated, and it's definitely an unfinished bu- piece of business. Speaking of unfinished business, as we sit here 24 hours or so after Gottlieb's news broke that he was leaving— do we know who's going to lead the agency? No. Um, and we talked a bit about this on, on our last panel, but I'm curious, Selena, you've tracked FDA for a long time. Is there even a short list for who the person is going to be running FDA after he departs? So normally we would look to a deputy commissioner role. Amy Abernathy, I think I'm saying her name right, is a new deputy commissioner or principal deputy commissioner. Um, but she hasn't been at the agency very long. And neither has another deputy commissioner I'm more familiar with, Frank Yanis, who works on food policy and response. That's a new title. And neither of them have been at the agency, I don't think, long enough to kind of qualify to be acting um, commissioner. And so we're not sure. And we asked the still current commissioner about this today, and we did not get a response. So it is an unknown, something that I think a lot of reporters in Washington are going to be bugging them about. I'd, I'd love to see the internal uh, trials of who wants to be the next FDA commissioner <laughs> that, they, that they may be running. Is there is there any expectation that any policies are going to drop in the next few weeks that will serve as Gottlieb's kind of farewell at FDA, some signature effort he's trying to get over the hump. Sarah Carlin Smith, who's on the first panel, did mention something about tobacco. Right. Yeah. So that is definitely one of his biggest priorities. Um, he has a plan to significantly curb e-cigarette sales, specifically in convenience stores, that uh, he already essentially unveiled in November, but he presented last week at the White House. Uh, that plan, he has assured us, he is very confident in his words. He said he's very confident that that is going to go through very soon. He has every intention of finishing that up while he's here. What he won't be able to finalize in his last month is broader tobacco reform. So specifically uh, banning menthol cigarettes and all flavors in cigars, which are both proposals that are in the draft form right now and that he's very passionate about, but he just doesn't have the time to make them go through. He, when speaking with us earlier, was very aware how controversial those are. Um and said, you know, he doesn't know what's going to happen in the next few months or with the next commissioner, but he thinks that he's laid the groundwork for those to survive. So on on the food side, I mentioned, you know, dairy labeling. This is an open question. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen with this consumer education plan or really the broader nutrition strategy that they've laid out. Part of what they want to do there is update some archaic um, food labeling standards. And, uh, you know, one of the commissioner's points on this was that if you updated some of these old regulations, you could spur more innovation in the food sector that might help uh, combat diet-related disease and help people encourage them to eat healthier. Um, There's also this question of whether or not the uh, FDA will keep working on sodium reduction targets that are voluntary for the food industry, uh, but are quite controversial. They were first proposed under the Obama administration, and he has said that, you know, that they're going to continue working on them. But it remains a question under a different commissioner, will there be kind of the political cover to do something that's more controversial down the line? And I, I want to take it to my last question, which is on this legacy of what comes after Scott Gottlieb. Did he permanently change the agency or is it going to just snap back? Could Donald Trump pick someone from 
Silicon Valley, who has a very different view on FDA, which was one of the prevailing theories a couple of years ago that that a Peter Thiel acolyte, the, the venture capitalist who supported Trump in his campaign, uh, wanted to put someone in who didn't believe in regulating drugs and devices. So could FDA go back to the FDA that we are so familiar with? Or, or is there a legacy here that some of these things are just built so deep now after two years, they're not going to get shaken? One of the ways it might snap back is on the communication side, who knows? But uh, on drugs, you raise a good point about regulation. I don't think that anybody on either side of the aisle saw what Gottlieb was doing and the plans that he put in place, even the unfinished ones, as necessarily controversial. They were really more aware of and adapting to current realities in the drug space and and things like speeding up clinical trials or making the data from it more accessible to other people. I don't really see someone, even someone from Silicon Valley, or even especially someone from Silicon Valley, trying to rewrite that legacy. And so I think, especially in the drug and device space, that is safe. Tobacco is a big open question. And then there's other open questions that Helena and I have worked on together, like cannabidinol and what the future is for that, because he just started on that project. That's that's CBD and, yes. and the oils that are now circulating as like pain relievers and other things that are yes. largely unregulated. Yes. And the FDA last year, uh, late last year, told uh, Congress that it technically has the authority to regulate those as drugs. But that leaves all these dietary supplements that Helena would know more about with her space uh, kind of in limbo. Or even putting it in beverages. There's these questions about, you know, so the last farm bill legalized hemp. And one of the most lucrative things you can make with hemp is CBD. And can you add that to foods and supplements right now? Shampoo. I got a pitch for that. Pet food is the thing also. Um, So that's a whole Wild West area where they're going to have to draw up some some. ground rules for figuring out how that's all going to work without, I guess, infringing on the pharma side, which I've gotten a little bit of a crash course on recently. Um, I think on the food side, what will be interesting, less so on whether or not certain controversial policies can advance, is whether or not the next commissioner is even interested in food and talking about food policy as much as Gottlieb was, because that was really what surprised people. Uh, a lot of times, uh, most times, FDA commissioners come from a more medical background, which makes sense considering their portfolio of issues. It's a really broad portfolio. And if you do not have a medical background or they've a, consistently hired doctors, right, they, in yeah, fact, the thought that doc- Trump might go outside that, that path yeah. was concerning. Yeah, I talked to someone today and they were like, you know, the doctors who get there are always surprised at how interesting food issues are, right? Because it's not – it tends to not be their wheelhouse when we look at who's going to be on the short list. I'll certainly look all of them up, but I can almost guarantee you none of them will have a food record. And we didn't expect Gottlieb to be as vocal on food as he has been. One legacy point that I'm, I'm curious to see if it persists is how Scott Gottlieb, who a few years ago would have been seen as a non-starter for this kind of administration job, by Democrats at least, because of his financial entanglements. They quickly ran and embraced him when some of the less traditional candidates from Silicon Valley were being put forward and Gottlieb got confirmed and then was quickly uh, in, in embraced by Democrats who liked his style, his strategy, and, and the policies he was putting forward. Peter Orzag, the former Obama budget official, was on this podcast a few months ago saying that the success of Dr. Gottlieb and, and also HHS Secretary Azar has given him cause to rethink whether there should be more people coming from industry into government. Historically, that has not been a Democratic uh, the, the Democrats haven't really put forward industry folks. They look more for researchers, academics, career government types, not people who are coming off Wall Street to run 
big healthcare organizations. So I'm curious to see if, if this is just an artifact of the Trump administration or if Democrats will have a new broader approach to who they think should fill these kind of regulatory roles. It's an interesting, that's an interesting observation, but Gottlieb did have a, a fairly lengthy track record at FDA. So I think going in and out of the, kind of the think tank world, FDA industry, the um, venture capital world probably gave him a broader view of sort of the wider landscape uh, that is a little bit different than someone who would, you know, come straight out of the private sector. Um, but I don't know that even if you got someone random out of industry, that they're going to have that aggressive communication strategy. I think to your point earlier, that is probably going to be a unique characteristic of this tenure. I, I think we should underline it. Scott Gottlieb was one of a kind. Uh, we are we are not expecting another FDA commissioner with his set of skills, his comms approach, his in- initiative. He also very notably was one of the only, if not the only, FDA commissioner to talk really directly about drug pricing, which of course is a pet project of President Trump. And so I think back to that industry point, he did really strike a balance on trying to protect the incentives that would keep industry you know, engaged in developing new and life-saving technologies, but also was not afraid to talk very directly about what they needed to do and to shame them when they were doing things that kept generic or cheaper medicines away from people. And he was able to blend, because he was a former HHS official during the George W. Bush administration, he was able to blend that regulatory background with the industry knowledge and then say, look, guys, I've been in your shoes, I get it, but this is why we need to move where Trump wants us to go. Well, I guess we will see who inherits those very big shoes of Scott Gottlieb. Helena, Sarah, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to all of my colleagues, Sarah Overmall, Sarah Carlin Smith, Helena Bottomiller-Evich, Adam Kankren, and of course, Mikaela Rodriguez, who produced the show. If you like Politico Pulse Check, you can find it on your favorite podcast app. Please rate and review us there. You can find me at ddiamondpolitico.com by email. And you can find a new episode of Politico Pulse Check in your podcast player next week.